Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello and welcome to Series 3, Episode 9 of Out With Susie Ruffle. Hello. I hope that whenever you're listening to this, you're having a good day. It's currently 11 minutes past 10 on Sunday the 25th of April. And I'm 2021, I should add. And I'm I'm just about to have some hot cross buns. That's what's happening in my life right now. Um, it's been a really good week for me. I've been delighted actually that I am that me and this show have been nominated for a British LGBT award um, alongside some really, really famous, brilliant people. And um, I'm really delighted that people are enjoying the show, that it's getting out there, that uh, that it's been nominated for award. It really, really meant a lot to me. If you want to vote for me, you absolutely can. Uh, details are on my Twitter or you can just sort of Google the 2021 British LGBT Awards and give me and this little podcast a vote that would be uh, majorly appreciated. So as always we received loads and loads of emails this week. I love going through them as you all know. Um, Some of them people say I don't want you to share this I just want you to know this so know that I have read it and um, also lots of people getting in touch always with great recommendations. I want you to know that when I get recommendations I, I do reach out I do try and get people on the show. We have got Oh, so many brilliant episodes left in this series. I'm really thrilled. Today's, I think, is really special as well. And we'll get to that in just a minute. As always, I love sharing uh, listener emails. So let's start with one here. Dear Susie, thank you so much for the work that you do. Your podcast and your comedy have brought me so much joy and helped me feel less isolated. Thank you very much. This podcast makes me feel less isolated by talking to you a lot. So I'm really pleased that it feels the same for you. My coming out journey has been very long. I came out to myself at age 21 and then found that I couldn't face coming out to anyone else, even my close friends. I should add that I grew up in a rural area and have known very few out gay people. I waited for years feeling like I was always on the verge of telling them, whilst also having a sort of for and against weighing scale where I mentally logged any time anyone showed any homophobia, a lack of openness, or on the other side of the scale, they seemed like an ally. I was constantly deliberating whether to come out and I always erred on the side of caution. Sure, they seem like an understanding friend and retweeted a gay celebrity, but maybe they will shun me. I never felt comfortable and I've since realized that it was almost entirely down to internalized homophobia. I was also really cautious about not letting people know that I'm gay, to the extent that I would make up ex-boyfriends so that I had something heterosexual to reference when people wanted to chat at work. I'm a teacher and I was convinced that the pupils' parents would hate me if they knew I was gay. It sounds ridiculous now, and although I'm still very guarded, I have become much more comfortable in recent years. Then, in late 2019, someone at work, a close friend, started chatting casually about whether anyone on our team was gay. She caught me off guard and in a panic, I felt that I needed to draw attention away from me. I hastily made a joke about suspecting one particular colleague of being the prime suspect. I went home feeling awful about what I'd done. I was ashamed and I felt that enough was enough. I needed to own my sexuality with pride and stop hiding and stop being homophobic. I contacted my friend and simply came out to her. I explained why I might have come across as homophobic. It was a scary moment for me, but ultimately it was such a relief. Then last year in February, just before lockdown happened, with the support of my friend, I had a coming out spree. I was still not ready to come out to my family, but I came out to six more colleagues and friends and went to a queer dance night with some of them. 
The lockdown a few weeks later has rather stalled my life as an out gay woman, but having podcasts like yours, featuring so many out and proud people living joyfully has been a great help and helped me keep my eye on the goal, to be out and proud, open and courageous, and the kind of role model that I so badly needed. With so much gratitude, Rosie. And she said that I can use her real name. Um, Rosie, thank you so much for writing in. Um, I think so many people have felt similarly about getting ready to come out or coming out or really getting hold of their identity. And then of course the world stopped and we've all been in this weird place for the last, what, 14 months or 13 months. And I can imagine it feeling, yeah, like you'd really stalled, like you were ready to get hold of that queer life and get hold of some queer joy. And and to that, I'd just say, you know, don't worry. When when things reopen properly, the parties are going to be so brilliant. The prides are going to be so wonderful. You know, and I think we've all learned a lot in this time about being more and more inclusive. And hopefully we're learning more as being more inclusive as a community. And when those nights out and those club nights and those pride parades and those marches and those protests happen, you, you might have feel like you've, you've, you've had a brief pause in time, but you know, it's there for the taking, it's yours. And I, I hope that you'll feel completely welcomed by the brilliant LGBTQIA plus community. Thank you so much for writing in Rosie. Right, I've got another email. Now, you might hear me sort of stumble a bit in this one because I'm really aware with this email that I want to make sure that there's nothing in it that could uh, show who someone is or that could sort of out someone by accident. So if I if I if I stumble a little bit, I'm sorry about that. My brilliant editor Michael will probably uh, make things um, a bit better. But um, I'll, I'll just get on with reading the email, shall I? If you read this out, please don't use my name, as I would hate to publicly out someone who isn't ready for that. From the background story of me and my children, it sounds like the story of my child coming out is a complete non-event that couldn't possibly be worth sharing with anyone in the LGBTQIA community. And this is not praise for me being a woke mama story, but I promise you our children always have the capacity to surprise us, even when we think we have them all figured out. I would like to start by saying in my late 30s, I've only recently started to admit to other people that I'm attracted to women as well as men. I've known this since I was about 15 and had a couple of sexual encounters with girls from sixth form and university before falling in love with a man who became the father of my children. As someone who grew up under section 28, it seemed so much easier to never mention attraction to anyone but men and let everyone assume that I'm 100% straight, as I suspect many other bi or pansexual people did up until recently. As their father and I are no longer together and I'm just not willing to close off the possibility of relationship or sex with women or non-binary people. So now is the time to stop caring what everyone thinks. I listen to your podcast for me more to understand my child who recently came out to me, but it's helpful for that too. I've always taught my children that everyone is equal and no one should experience hatred for how, where they were born because both of my children were born white and in possession of a penis in a wealthy Western country. We all know that that is the exact demographic most of the prejudice and hate in this world comes from. I was especially vocal about how there's nothing wrong with being gay because I didn't know who they were attracted to. However, I'm not out to my children purely because teenagers do not want to hear about their parents having sex and I have no desire to tell my teenager I'd happily sleep with a woman if the opportunity presents itself. I've missed the years where I could have told them without them being aware of sexual feelings. So I figure if I ever have a serious enough relationship with a woman to introduce them to them, then they'll know. I said I didn't know who my children are attracted to, but that really is, I don't know who my children are attracted to until they were five. At five years old, my oldest told me there was a new girl at school that was lovely. Never spoken to her, but he can tell by just looking at her face. I was not prepared for this. He was five. My internal monologue screamed, no, 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 no. Come back in 10 years and tell me that. I was actually less shocked when my youngest came home, upset that his friends had banned him from playing kiss chase. He was kissing the boys and was utterly confused as to why he should ever want to kiss a girl. After telling him he shouldn't be forcing kissing on anyone that is running away, I told him I'd tell him to find clubs full of boys that want to kiss other boys when he is old enough to go. So he's gay. I'll just wait for him to either tell me or bring a boyfriend home. Cut to 10 years later. My oldest is at a local grammar school while my youngest is in an all boys comprehensive as the mixed school in the area is Catholic and not what I want for my non-religious gay son, or a performing arts academy. He would rather die than be put on stage, not conforming to stereotypes I know. My youngest is ready for school, standing in the hallway, blinking back tears, repeatedly putting his hand on the handle and then stepping away, physically unable to leave the house. He's never been thrilled with going to school, despite being proud of how well he does academically, but I had no idea he found it that upsetting. 
I no longer care that he's late. I just want to know why school is awful. It's too stressful. He knows he's doing really well and GCSEs are not the huge do amazingly well or mess up the rest of your life that the teachers make out it to be. It's not the work. He can't tell me why. No one has been unkind to him because no one has been unkind to him. It's because of him. He hasn't done anything he shouldn't or anything he feels bad about. No arguments with friends. He just can't tell me. He knows I love him no matter what and he can tell me anything. He can't say it. There is something wrong with him. Not unwell wrong, just wrong. There is something wrong with him. He is wrong. Okay, this is about him being gay. I'd encourage him to say it. Tell him I didn't think his generation cared about that. It's fine, I'm bisexual, it doesn't really matter. He can't say it, saying it makes it real. He doesn't want it to be real. He knows he shouldn't be ashamed of anything about himself. No one should be ashamed, but he is. It's not about a crush. It's not about who he fancies at all. It's not that trivial. It's how he looks. It's not his weight. It's what he looks like. Yes, he looks to me like a perfectly normal teenage boy. Exactly. My heart sank. He should look like a girl. She should look like a girl. Tears rode down her cheeks. My heart broke. I hugged her as she sobbed on my shoulder. I'm devastated. Heartbroken. I'm not heartbroken because I have a trans daughter. She didn't break my heart. I'm heartbroken because she is my baby and I can't protect her. And that is all I am supposed to do. I always thought parents being upset about their children being anything other than cis heterosexual was a lack of understanding, but this isn't that. I understand. I understand how the world will treat her. I understand how she'll have to fight to be believed, to be accepted. I have seen friends go through this and that was bad enough, but this is my baby. I'm average in every way, in size, still holding a child that is taller than me and well on track to being taller than the average man, but she is my baby and I can't make anything better. And now I understand why parents of my generation, when they claimed that they didn't mind their children were gay, that they loved us no matter what, but they hoped that we weren't. Up until this morning, I thought us being gay would be the disappointment to them. We would be a disappointment. No, they didn't want us to have to fight consistently to get and keep our rights. Even with the support of family and friends, even with them standing to fight with you, the fighting is still tough. That's why I took the easy path and kept quiet about my attraction to women. I understand that. I also understand how growing up, hearing parents wish us not to be gay gave shame to so many people. So I hug my daughter a little tighter as her tears soak my shirt. I swallow the lump in my throat, blink back tears and secretly press those that escaped into her blazer while her eyes are buried into my shoulder and she can't see my face. She has a struggle ahead of her. We have a struggle ahead of us. I was so certain that I had a gay son, I didn't even think that I could have a trans daughter. Parents get it wrong, people get it wrong. I'm also aware that most trans people prefer to be called by their true pronouns when talking about things they did while they were still presenting as the gender they were assigned at birth. I repeatedly used he in her coming out story because using she throughout would have given away what I didn't see coming right from the start. Thank you for giving us so many different perspectives on life and love. I really, I mean, first of all, you sound like the most amazing mum, and I'm sure loads of people are listening to this wishing that they had a mum like you. I hope that your daughter is okay and that she's getting any help that she needs right now. Um, I really hope that in creating a podcast like this where I try to make sure that I have people from all aspects of the LGBTQIA plus community, um, that, that conversations might help someone or just might help them feel less alone. Thank you for sharing your story with us and thank you for um, for showing what, us what a brilliant mum looks like. Um, yeah, I'm sending you loads of love. Right, let's get on to today's conversation. It's with my brilliant friend, Brona C. Titley. I really hope that you enjoy this. I really enjoyed recording it. I think it's a really special one. And I think what Brona has to say about shame is brilliant and remarkable and wonderful and I mean, I say it in the show, I wish someone had said this to me when I was growing up, but yeah, it's a special one today. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, listener, I'm very excited about today's today's interview. I'm very excited to share this person with you if you're not aware of her already, but you should be. That's the thing, you should be. Brona C. Titley is a brilliant Irish actor and comedy writer. You might have seen her recently in Sky One's Reluctant Landlord, Women on the Verge, Tracy Breaks the News for BBC One, or ITV's stand-up sketch show. She's also a writer who has written, I mean, on 
kind of all of the comedy shows that are going on at the moment. Eight out of 10 cats, The Last Leg, The Mash Report, Harry Hill's Fun Capture, Spitting Image, and that's just naming a few of them. She's funny, she's brilliant, and she's very kind. She's also a dear friend of mine. Welcome to the show, Brona. <gasps> Susie, what a joy, a treat, a pleasure, and a delight to be here. All of those things. The first question, <laughs> what does the C stand for? Oh my God, do you know this as my dear close personal friend? Have you ever known this? No, I haven't. I've just always accepted it. It's a really fun game for non-Irish people. Um, oh, I do know what it is. You do. See if you can say Quiver. it. Quiver. Oh my God, I'm so proud. God bless you. Uh, did you sneeze? Uh, yeah. <laughs> See, I've just, I, as you started saying Quiver, I, I was like, I had a conversation. Some box, some dusty box at the back of your vast, incredible brain, there was the knowledge of my uh, my mid initial. Yes, it's Quiver. And um, I just like to sound pretentious and wanky like, Homer J. Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> and for the non-Irish listeners, yeah. um, could you spell Quiver for me? Yeah, sure. It is um, Z S pound sign pound sign hashtag number four uh, T E D. Um, no. It's... And why did you use C? <laughs> it's C. Obviously, it's C A O I M H E. And that's why I always, I just know that you're Brona T. Silly and I know your middle name's Quiver. I know. But I can never, I can never merge those two things in my brain. And you're, you're just indebted to my parents who changed my name from Quiver to Brona when oh, I was really? six months old so that you could, so that English people like you could pronounce it. So the scummy English, <laughs> like me, didn't have to make any effort with your name. The Brits are at it again. Well, you know that I want to be Irish because of my love of Irish music. And I am actually counting down the days until I can get you to a family, a Titley family reunion where we just sit around with guitars and sing for eight hours into the night, uh, no matter how many noise complaints are made to the local authorities. <laughs> I love that one Christmas. Was it like a Christmas where you it were at home Christmas, and you just yeah. sent me a voice note? Because I had mentioned to Brenna how much I love Irish music and Irish singing and just sent me a voice note of your family just doing a just, yeah. a, just an Irish folk song. And you were just, I think actually had you seen it on like an Insta story or something and you sent me like quite Maybe. a terrifying message that was like, who are those people singing and how can I be there? <laughs> yeah, I think it was a bit like that, yeah. And yeah. I was like, marry into so, the family, Susie, marry This is actually a marriage proposal, even though you're already married, but it's going to be quite an Thank awkward you interview. Thank so much. Listen, we've spent a lot of time together during the pandemic, and I'm fine with taking a new wife. <laughs> if ever there was a good time to take a new wife, it would be now. <laughs> and we have very similar names, me and your wife, so that would keep it very simple. That's true. It would, it would be no adjustment whatsoever. <laughs> very easy oh, for everyone. Wow. Um, how are yeah. you, mate? Oh, I'm good. Thank you so much. It, it's genuinely lovely to spend time with you, to be on a podcast and to still be at home wearing my slippers. But I do want you to know that I put a bra on for you because that is respect. That is respect. And I thank you for that. I thank you. So you're working at home with a little one. Yeah, that's right. How has that been? Well, it's an interesting experience. Like your life kind of changes 180 when mm -hmm. you have a baby and then it sort of changes 180 again when you have a, a global health crisis and that adds up to 360 but I'm not back where <laughs> I was a year ago so the maths doesn't work out there yeah I mean uh in a way my daughter who is 14 months now she's gained more than she's lost in the sense that she had her two mothers home all of the time mm -hmm. um, and you know gets to be incredibly bonded to both of us and really secure and all of that stuff but at the same time like her head is going to explode the first time she goes to a soft play like yeah. she's gonna walk in the door of a soft play and be like sorry what this stuff was here and you've never brought me and then she'd be like wait why are there other baby-sized people walking around this am I not the only baby in the history of the world so you know that kind of stuff uh <laughs> will has has been a challenge but then work-wise like obviously I work as a as an actor and a writer and weirdly I did shoot uh, a small part in a sitcom before Christmas and I have another part coming up but mostly it's been writing. And I'm just so lucky that as writers, we're a movable feast. Like mm -hmm. we can actually, you know, you can still write in your bedroom during the apocalypse, it turns out. And I did six months on um, 
Spitting Image last year, which was, you know, a sort of topical comedy show during this time. Like, I'm extremely close friends with some of the writers on that show, and I have not seen them from the waist down. <laughs> and I have seen most of my friends from the waist down. Well, I mean, it's actually, I mean, it's actually a, something you ask for as we, we come into the house, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's the first thing I'm like, hey, good to see you, pal. Take your trousers off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nothing rude. It's just, you just have to wear shorts at Brainers. That's all it is. I just like to see a pair of legs, uh, you know. And, Fair enough. Um, fair enough yeah things worst things have happened at sea um yeah so it's been a strange time but i feel sort of extremely blanketed by the privilege of managing to hold on to some bit of work mm -hmm. and then also you know the privilege of becoming becoming a parent um so it's been okay it's just been a lot yeah of course and does that mean that your little girl hasn't been back to ireland yet well, so there was that period in the summer where you could travel if you if you oh, quarantined. Yes. So we were, oh my God, we were so lucky. We managed to get her on a ferry, um, sort of wore masks on the ferry as everybody did anyway. And like we were in our own car, we traveled in a, you know, we paid 35 pounds, treated ourselves to a private cabin on the ferry. Um, and then we just went and quarantined in Ireland and then were able to see my family. And oh, we just didn't great. see anyone else while we were there. We just kind of spent time outdoors. Yeah, so they have only met her once, which is, absolutely insane that I have a 14 month old and my father because I'm extremely close to my family and mm -hmm. like they've only met my daughter once um, but we do FaceTime every day and my parents kind of just ignore me and talk to her so that's <laughs> fine I'm, I'm not bitter about having been replaced by this fruit of my own loins <laughs> <laughs> So whereabouts in Ireland did you grow up? Um, I'm from Dublin. I am a mm -hmm. Dublin city chick, born and bred. So I grew up uh, in a place called Glasnevin. I was going to break into Cockles and Mussels then please about do. old Molly Malone, but I'm yeah, not going to explain my love of Irish music. No, I won't. I, won't. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that. That's what you think uh, we sit around singing. It's like, you know, like... I mean, you literally sent me a voice note of you, <laughs> of you, of your family singing. So please don't make out like I'm the one with stereotypes here. <laughs> Like no, you were the one that was like, oh, someone's got one of those, oh, I don't know what they're called, the, the, the drummy things. Oh, a baron. A baron. You're making it seem like I'm the one with all the cliches, but you're the one. No, that, that's true. You're, you're but slightly I, encouraging I do sit around singing, but I just want to clarify that we don't sit around singing cockles and mussels alive, alive -o. Um But we will for you when you come to visit. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm from Dublin and I went to university, or as we called it, college in Dublin. And I never, ever thought I would leave Dublin. And I moved to London for drama school to go to train at Lambda. And I was mm -hmm. there a week and I was like, oh, I'm never going back, am I? Um, just because I've just, my whole life, I've been obsessed with theatre. And then that kind of segued into comedy and that segued into comedy TV. And Ireland is incredible. The people are incredible. The, the theatre industry is great. It's just that it's small. The population mm -hmm. of, of Ireland is like, you know, 4.5 million. And, you know, RTE, which is our BBC, they make two sitcoms a year. And here I can work across, I don't know, four different comedy shows on, in a week. So mm -hmm. it's just not sustainable to have the job that I have here. It's not sustainable. However, this year has changed everything in the sense that, like, I can actually do jobs from my bedroom now. Um, mm. So, you know, maybe, maybe I will do more Irish stuff. Um, I went back uh, two years ago for an amazing Irish sitcom called Finding Joy that I co-wrote the story of, starring Amy Huberman, who's a brilliant comedy writer and actress. And it was just so much fun to be uh, to be in an Irish writing writer's room. It was brilliant. We sat around singing Cockles and Muscles Alive Alive Out. So you would How you did would you get writing done? <laughs> oh, I loved No, it. no, the show is just um, six episodes of Molly Malone. Right, and is that available anywhere? Where is, can I watch yeah, that sorry, anywhere? I'll send you a link, it? Susie, because I think Brilliant, you'll thanks. enjoy it, actually. You'll get a lot out of it. <laughs> That's great. Um, so when you say you thought, oh, I'll never leave Dublin, is that because mm. growing up there, did you just love it? Yeah, I did. And, like, I do, I think you would agree, potentially, as my friend, that I have a bit of a optimistic personality anyway so like I loved school and I loved college and I loved Dublin and then I moved to London and I loved drama school and I loved London so I've been you know I've been kind of happy wherever I've been but I think it was just I suppose I felt uh, without sounding like too much of a cliche I felt very Irish I felt like my identity mm -hmm. was wrapped up in Irish theatre Irish the Irish language Irish music 
Um, and I didn't think that I would need to live anywhere else. And then it mm -hmm. was only when I sort of started to develop my kind of professional tastes, I suppose, um, and the scope of what was available in Ireland versus what I kind of wanted to do. Um, and the specificity, I suppose, of my job, because like lots of like the shows you mentioned in the intro, I'm a gag writer and I mm -hmm. don't know how many people are making a full time career out of being a gag writer, unless they're stand ups and I've never been a stand up. But like in terms of gag writing for TV, that, that that's much more uh, doable here, I suppose. And did you grow up talking about feeling very Irish in the yeah. language? Did you grow up speaking? Is, is Irish your first language? Um, I'd love to say that it is, but that would be a lie. Um, English is <laughs> English, and I would never lie to you, Susie. I, that's well, thank that's you. respect. Not, on, there are other podcasts where Brona oh, says that it's her first language. I love so much. I don't even tell them my middle name. I tell them the C stands for <laughs> Katerina. Um, yeah. So, for example, in my family, like, my dad is a professor of the Irish language and he's a writer, um, but we didn't speak it at home all of the time. But I, I, I come from a large family. I have There's five kids, so I have two, two brothers and two sisters. And I'd say about half of us just started to really love it and it clicked and the other half maybe didn't love it so much. So then I began to speak Irish with my dad growing up as a teenager and then I have some friends that I speak Irish with like Ashling B who you know she and I will speak Irish and not just so that the Brits around us don't understand but also for love of the language um, but that's just an added bonus yes yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah it wasn't it wasn't a full-time um, language at home but it, it was a, it does still feel like a mother tongue if you know what I mean and I didn't know that your dad was a... I knew he was a professor, but I didn't know that he was a writer. Yes, he's an Irish language writer. So he's written like 18 books. Uh, you just haven't read them because they're all in Irish. Because I'm, I'm ignorant and I refuse to learn Irish. As we've... <laughs> know, which has been a real stickler in our friendship up to this point, because every time <laughs> really I come to your is. house, I ask you to take your trousers off. And then I say, have you learned Irish yet? And you always say yes to the first and no to the second. I'm sorry. I will try harder, I promise. <laughs> Thank you. So is it quite a creative house that you grew up in? Actually, it was quite an academic house. Like, I think creativity right. was... An, so my dad, uh, he's retired now, but he's still a writer, but he's retired from being a professor. My mum was a primary school teacher. Now, my eldest brother is a university lecturer. The next sister is a teacher. The next sister is a university lecturer. Then there's me um, and my little brother, who is also an actor and now a bar owner. So there was quite a... It wasn't like there was a focus on academia. It's just that academia was the kind of, like, vein that ran through the house a little bit um, but because my dad was uh, also a writer and his books are like very creative I think that that was kind of in and, and my mom is very creative as well it was kind of in in the genes and also I was extremely show-offy from a young age like I bet as soon as I figured out what acting was which I think I got by like watching EastEnders I begged my parents to uh, send me to drama class and then they did and then they sent me for like 15 years like from when I was five up until like I was old enough to take myself off so they were incredibly supportive of that and so when you say you were show-offy what were you like at school so I was a good student uh but I was once I sort of found my voice which I think you kind of come into your own personality a bit more when you're like 12 13 then I think I always wanted to make a joke so I would sort of be like, be well behaved, be well behaved, be well behaved. But if the teacher said something that was a good setup for a punchline, I would be in there so fast. Um, so I think, uh, and then I, and so I had a reputation with like my class for being funny, but I don't think I had a reputation of being the class clown because I was also quite good. And because I came from a family of teachers, I wouldn't, I would like, would not have dreamed of being like a no bold as we call it. I would never have been bold, like a naughty student. I, I have was, to still, I was quite bold. Yeah, I bet you were. <laughs> 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 it's quite like I've listened to uh, quite a lot of this podcast because it's an excellent podcast and you're a dear friend and also I'm nosy Thanks, um, but like, <laughs> the stories of you at school is actually quite shocking like you were a little nightmare I was in an adorable tricky. way <laughs> well not for the teachers I mean some of the teachers I think oh god I, I was probably really annoying to you and other teachers really like me and then yeah. there are some teachers that I'm like you were just a prick who yeah. didn't like children and I think fair enough that I was difficult no and that's <laughs> really good to realize that when you become an adult isn't it that actually like yeah. they weren't all gods that like some of them were very flawed human beings <laughs> yeah I was also at a catholic school and I wasn't catholic okay, okay. and I quite quickly went I think a lot of this might be bollocks. 
And you've just described like Ireland's journey in the last 100 years in, in your journey. At Finally, school. I'm Irish. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, regardless of sort of what I, you know, any sort of spirituality I have now. Yeah, but there was, yeah, yeah. it's certainly a time where I was like, yeah, I'm not sure what they're drinking is definitely Jesus's blood. Yeah. I'm just not sure that I buy it. It's so interesting because like my whole Catholic school, like those classes, we were told, you know, and this happened. And then like he took a fish and he turned it into sushi for everybody in the town. Um, and then I remember being being a teenager and like kind of questioning these and a teacher eventually saying, well, you know, they're a metaphor. And I was like, what? You've been, you've been teaching it as fact like my whole life. <laughs> it questions what else is metaphor yes, exactly. that she's been teaching. Yeah. Is the science a metaphor? Well, some people actually think that, so let's not go there. <laughs> so is it quite Catholic at home? No, no, it no. wasn't. We, we did go to mass. And again, weirdly, I sort of went to mass longer than everyone else in my family like my my I think like uh, I can't speak for the whole of Ireland but I was a teenager in the 90s and um and there was just like a sort of a nationwide disillusionment in the church because so many cases of child sexual abuse were coming out so many uh, priests and bishops had secret families and secret wives and so all of a sudden the kind of you know putting the priest up on the pedestal your whole life that my parents generation did kind of fell apart um and people had been a little bit lapsy lazy catholic before that anyway so i never felt like catholicism had a had a huge strangle on my life or personality nor did did it really have on my household but going to mass was still a kind of a ritual that we did and I mm -hmm. like ritual and also I had no other language for my spirituality when I was a teenager so I thought well I I want to talk to someone about what's going on I don't really know if it's the God that you're describing but this church and half an hour on a Sunday seems to be an okay outlet for that so I still kind of kind of kept that up for a bit longer and now my mother-in-law is Catholic um, and uh, my wife's mum and I take I go with her to mass sometimes and I still really do like the um, you know the ritual of it but I also feel like it's I mean like the Pope this week came out and said he can't bless same-sex uh, unions and because you can't bless yeah. sin God can't bless sin and when I saw that headline I actually just found it a bit funny because it was sort of like you are living the, the Catholic Church is living in a different world and a different time and bears no relevance upon the lives of so many people um, um, and so that's just a bit sad, really. It's just a bit mm. uh, like that headline was just a bit. I find it a bit pathetic because like what you're talking about there is love. And you're talking about you're saying mm. God can't bless love. And then what the what is the point of your God if he can't bless love? Um, wow, we got here fast, Susie Ruffle. <laughs> I love it. But I think that that's an important thing. I mean, I think that you can't help. Let me speak for myself personally rather than say... No, please, speak for all of England. Oh, okay, fine. I think that England... <laughs> I think that... I think that you can't help but be aware, even if when you're growing up, like me, sort of going, I think a lot of this could be bollocks. Um, and I'm sure yeah. there are people listening that don't think that it's bollocks, and that's great for them as well. But yeah, for me... Yeah, of course. Um, but I still can't help but sort of... Oh, let me work out what I'm trying to say because I don't know if I've ever said this out loud before but and, and you're not oh interviewing me but here we Susie go exclusive I'm here but I think I still somehow like seek the praise of like like when I interviewed although he's not Catholic but when I interviewed the Reverend Richard Coles I really wanted him yeah. to like me because <laughs> I was like oh, of course well, like, you, yeah. you're like this like you maybe you've you've got something that I can't get that, yeah. I, that I somehow can't tap into and yeah. I guess that's the thing with like the Pope coming yeah. out and saying that about same-sex unions the Pope came he, out yeah yeah so that's yeah that, that's been very confusing for the whole but you're a news cycle behind that's what's <laughs> two, that's two exclusives you have just uh, <laughs> dropped on this hot dropped on this podcast it's when like when you're you in a writer's to... room and you haven't read the news the day before oh that's everything's terrifying. changed <laughs> yeah. you've got a great pitch about Boris Johnson's speech and you don't realise that he's done something ten times worse like since, since then, you read exactly. yeah I don't need the Pope to like me you know but when there was the thing in the summer where he was saying he was sort of pro-gay and I was yeah, sort of relieved it by it pro-gay didn't it and I was relieved yeah. by it somehow and I'm like what's that linked to is that just because I am a desperate people pleaser and I want people to like me whether they're in the Vatican or at the comedy store join or, the club 
Yeah, or or is it because of growing up and having this sort of, I don't know, draconian yeah. religion yeah. constantly sort of spoken about every Friday when we were at Mass? Do you feel that? I don't, but I do know that priests were sort of, it sort of went like all people, priests, mm-hmm. then God. So, you know, in terms of like the sort of national um, psyche, is that what you would call yeah, it? Yeah, um, And so it does make sense. And also, you know, we all kind of want to be praised a bit by authority and we all want to be praised by parental figures. And, mm. you know, weirdly, like, well, you have to you have to call God our father and you have to, you know, in Catholicism, you, mm. there's a whole prayer around that. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, no, it makes total sense from like a human being point of view. But actually, I actually just got a text from the Pope there and he said, tell Susie, I think she's a great girl. Oh, so that, oh yeah, that's yeah. great. I think so he must have lost my number, so that's really oh, okay. That's yeah, that's yeah. really good. So you can rest assured he liked you. Well, I feel much better. Thank you, Bruno. It's always good to <laughs> chat to you. I always forget that you've got the Pope's number. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so growing up in that environment where you're at a Catholic school, not super Catholic at home, very academic at home. At what point were you? Because I know that you identify as bisexual. And so at what point yeah. did you, like, for you, did you think, oh, I'm interested in boys or I fancy boys? Yeah. And then yeah. did you go, oh, maybe it's girls as well? Or was it the other way around? Yeah. Um, it was very much the first way. And it's so interesting because I've thought about this, uh, well, I've thought about it a lot now in recent years because you kind of have more perspective to look back over your early years and also t- thought about it in the context of this podcast because, you know, you don't ever get this opportunity to sort of explore out loud what your journey was. But essentially, I hit, I don't know, 11 or 12 and I started to fancy boys. They were, I went to an all girls school. Um, the boys were, I kind of only knew them from my road or from my drama class. Um, and yes, all of those boys from my drama class are gay now. Um, but I, so I fancied them and I had, you know, I didn't have many boyfriends, um, like in my teenage years, but I, I had a few and I only exclusively fancied boys. So I went to an all girls school and did not for one second fancy a single girl in that school. I went to university and was still only fancying boys. I think I was in either my third or fourth year in university. Um, and degrees are four years in Ireland, not because we're thick, just because that's how long it takes. Um, and I, this is the story that I, I told myself for a long time and to a certain extent is still true. I went out with two gay friends one night to see a singer. And during the course of that show, I thought the singer, a female singer, was extremely sexy. I realized I fancied her. I realized I must be bisexual. And as soon as the applause happened, I said it to aloud to my friends. So it was it was my experience that I fancied a woman immediately said to my friends, I fancy a woman, I must be bisexual now. Which is sort of why I've kind of historically have felt that I didn't have a coming out story because I kind of felt like coming out uh, was, you know, people, the, the full sentence is you're coming out of a closet. And for me, I had literally never stayed in the closet for one second because as soon as I experienced the fancying of a woman, I articulated it. And from then on, I sort of thought I was bisexual and I fancied men and women. However, when I then go back over with that knowledge that I am and identify as bisexual, and by the way, my bisexuality is inclusive of people of all genders and trans people, um, just because there are some bisexuals that are stickler about that, so I want to be clear. Mm -hmm. So then when I looked back with that knowledge over my life, I was like, oh, that time I was 12 and I became obsessed with the woman who won the Eurovision. Uh, Well, I don't know how old I was, but it was that I definitely fancied her. And then when I was 19 and I went back to see that play four times because I had that actress in it, I didn't just think she was a great actress. I fancied her. But, and here's the thing, I think I would have realized that I fancied women a lot sooner if I had any, and I literally mean any, bisexual role models because I knew I fancied boys so it did not occur to me for one second that I was gay because my fancying of boys was real it wasn't you know it wasn't uh, something I was project like I was desperately trying to cling on to it was real I really fancied them um and I still and I still do um so I therefore knew I wasn't gay so I never had the time of being like am I gay am I gay and then when I essentially fancied women, I had no language for that. So I didn't recognize it as a crush. I just recognized it as like idolatry or admiration or, you know, that kind of thing. And I wasn't even visualizing myself kissing them or fantasizing about them because I didn't really have, I couldn't see that anywhere. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't anywhere on TV 
that I could really see a bisexual character. So as I say, it's it's only kind of with like the 2020 hindsight that I can go back and go, of course, I fancied women like alongside boys from a lot younger than I realized. But as soon as I realized it, then it sort of became part of my identity and and who I dated then. Then I dated men and women after that. Really? So it was after just watching that one concert that you were like, right, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date some women. Yeah. And I think also then there was, there was starting to be a bit more language about it. And, right. you know, I had, you know, I'd, I had learned that there was <laughs> such a thing as bisexuality. And hmm. the only thing is, is that like, I, like, I, I mean, I, I guess there are still, um, you know, prejudices about, about all sorts of sexualities now, but the only way I heard bisexuals described was a pit stop to gay town. That was the, yeah. it was the, only, like there was no such thing as bisexuals. People who said they were bisexual were really gay and, but they were in denial. And that's why, again, I think I maybe didn't know for a while that I was because I was so sure I wasn't gay. And, and so therefore I didn't, I just didn't know there was another option, if you know mm. what I mean. But I think it's really important. It's why, you know, on this podcast, I try really hard to make sure that everybody feels like they have been, yeah. like there's a story that's a little bit like them. I try to make sure yeah. that it's, um, yeah. you know, as diverse as possible in every sense of the word. Yeah. But I think that that's something that has come up a lot on yeah. the podcast is that more, more so women than, than the men yeah. Um, yeah. have said... I, I thought I was bisexual for a bit or I was bisexual yeah. for a bit or I thought being bisexual might be more palatable for exactly. a bit which yeah. I think is something that is it's quite tricky because yeah. I don't want someone who is bisexual to hear that and think that I think that everyone that is bisexual will go on to be a lesbian but also yes, exactly. that is how some people work out their gayness yes, exactly. and I think you're absolutely right not yeah. having the role models Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm I was just trying to think as you were saying that, and I'm like, Alice in the L word? Like, <laughs> she was bisexual, I think? Or is it just that I know that Leisha Haley's bisexual? Like, yeah. it's... Or is she bisexual? Like, you know, and so... But yeah. you're absolutely right. Not having that language. And I think, again, and I'd be so interested for your take on this, Brainer. I think that sometimes being bisexual has been used to sort of sex up. Yeah. Yeah. something yeah. or a, a pop yeah. star maybe saying or yeah. something like that yeah which i mean i i as a lesbian find that really annoying because i'm like well stop trying to trying to cash in on the pink pound if yes, you exactly. don't actually feel that but how does that yeah. feel as someone that does identify as bisexual yeah no like yeah. yeah how do you feel about that yeah well it's interesting because i used to be a lot so i'm married now and i'm married to a woman and you know uh, pandemic aside i do intend on staying married to her <laughs> um, so the, the marriage proposal for me at so, the top that, it was just a joke guys everyone knows. do you know what Susie? Okay, let's put it on the long finger and i do okay. i do mean <laughs> i do mean that sexually um, so but the reason why i bring that up is because people and and actually we've been in a relationship for 11 years and so when mm -hmm. you're a woman who's with a woman people immediately project gay or lesbian onto you yeah. um, and when you're a you know when you're a woman with man they immediately project straight onto you yeah um, and I know I've also made a mistake when I've been with you girls and I've been like come on lesbos or whatever yes. and you've been yeah. like I'm bisexual and I'm like thank you Brona I am sorry yeah. well, you're you know, absolutely right to pull me up on that and well, but I think it's important that you do pull me up on that because well I thought it was but I'm actually going to retire it a little bit now and here's why so the reason why I was okay. always so pedantic if you will when people would call me gay or a lesbian or straight and I'd go actually I'm bisexual uh, actually I'm bisexual and I would say it all of the time it's because of that dearth that absolute lack of uh, bisexual representation that I had growing up so I think I would have as I've already said I think I would have realized earlier that I was bi if I had any role models or knew that they existed so for me it was important to be visible and to talk about bisexuality so people knew it was a valid identity and not mm -hmm. something that was a, a train stop on the way to gay town or yep. sexually promiscuous or you know something made up now I think people uh, do know that and actually like you know the the conversation the culture everything has changed so I don't need to be a one walking one woman billboard for bisexuality it's not going to make someone go oh bisexuals exist if I correct them and so now I think okay I don't actually have to say it all of the time if people you know if people want to say I'm in a lesbian relationship or I'm gay I'll, I'll maybe tell them if it's relevant but I don't need to 
I don't need to take on the responsibility that nobody will know bisexuality exists unless I flag it up. So, sorry, that was just an aside. Um, that wasn't the answer to your question. I'm really pleased that you shared that. So what I'm saying is, Susie, you're forgiven for calling me a lesbo um, for that. <laughs> it, was with uh, a, it was with a group of other gay women and it, it was, was a term of endearment that I used for a collection. <laughs> I think I called you a cardigan of lesbians or something like that. And it wasn't, it was a cardigan of lesbians and a jumper of bisexuals. I think you called us a, a Doc Martin of lesbians and we a actually Birkenstock were, of dykes. Yes, and we all were wearing Birkenstocks at the time, yeah. so it was it was uh, accurate. Um, but anyway, so that's a journey I've been on with that. In answer to your question about like bisexual representation in TV, it's actually it's an interesting line because I think it's like if if it's bad writing and they have just done it to sex it up, then that's just going to feel like putting you two step you know one step forward, two steps backwards. If it's not, and it's a character who just happens to be bisexual or they get a bisexual storyline, but it's good TV, then I do think that representation makes a huge, huge, huge difference. And I, I think everybody knows that. You know, I think like uh, representation and authenticity of voice, and I mean that at every stage, you know, in the writer's room, in the casting, in the characters, I think if people can see a little bit of them, as someone who works in TV, if people can see a little bit of their own lives or themselves kind of reflected back, then that's going to be a much more impactful um, watch for them and they're gonna and they're also might learn something about themselves and uh I think I did like I mean I, it took me a while to find the L word on Irish TV but when I did I think I did appreciate that actually you know uh Alice's character it was Alice wasn't it yeah oh my god I know because I was in love yeah with where her. are you was she your girl <laughs> yeah do you know who mine yeah. was and this is weird nobody shares this do you remember Marina? Oh, yes. Yeah, I was obsessed with <laughs> yes, Marina. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course I remember Marina. Everyone no would ask me who my Elwood crush is and I'd be Marina and they would be like, sorry, what? <laughs> but obviously Bet as well. Um, oh, of course. She's a that queen. goes without saying. Um, yeah, so I think the more, I think like the more representation, the better, unless it's really shoddy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, at which totally. Point, at which point, just make them straight. It's fine. And so after this concert, who are you watching? Oh, I can't say because I know her. Oh, okay. Was it me? Was it, it was you. Doing my it was career? you doing Molly Malone, Cockles and Muscles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It was Madonna. It was Madonna. It and was she Madonna. And I are, Who you are really know. good friends. <laughs> and oh, I just um, got a text from Madonna, actually. She says um, she thinks you're a great girl. Oh, that's nice. Thank yeah. you. You've got all these text messages coming in. I know. I shouldn't be looking at my um, phone during a podcast, but I am. But I don't mind it if it's Madonna and the Pope. <laughs> um, so after this moment of briefly being in. In, in a closet, but I, but, yeah. I, but I, you know, I totally understand that you're saying you had these moments yes. beforehand. Yeah. Um, and you told two of your pals. Did you then just tell everyone? I think I did. Were you so sure in yourself? I, I think I did because I didn't really, and I've been very lucky in this sense. I didn't. While there was people in my life who did have some kind of like fear and homophobia and those kind of things, I didn't have any internalized shame. So I think very quickly it became something I spoke about. I mean, I don't think I went on to date, a, to properly date a woman for a few years, but it was something I was kind of now more open to and, and discussing. And except for a couple of conversations with my family, I can't remember telling a single friend that I was bisexual, which suggests to me that it was just something I chatted about like any, you know, like anything else. And like, I always have been, and this is why I'm probably... It's probably both brilliant and extremely difficult to be married to me. But I always have been the kind of like, I'm Irish and I'm an actress, so I have an emotion and then I want to talk about it. So it's sort of like, oh, I've just felt something and now I'm going to articulate that uh, as opposed to, you know, kind of taking that and pushing it down. So I think I was very open. As soon as I had that realization, I was very open. I didn't really talk to my family about who I dated anyway. So I waited until I was in what I knew to be a serious relationship. So it had like you know, a, a, a relationship with a woman, a, rela- a relationship with a man, none of which I had told my family about. But when I met my now wife and I knew instantly it was going to be serious. So I told my family about it after about three weeks, three or four weeks. Um, that was like the closest I've had to uh, 
you know, to coming out conversations because there, as I've already mentioned, I was one of a family of seven and there was one, one person in the family who had quite a significant uh, journey with that and was very afraid and upset and confused. And essentially it was homophobia, but just disguised as a fear of being different. Um, and then maybe one other person in the family that felt some of those things on a smaller level, but, uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, would never say it to me. So just kind of worked that out by themselves. But then, you know, everyone in the family was extremely welcoming to my, to Sue, my wife. Um, and now they would almost deny that they ever had a problem with it. It's kind of been written out of history that that ever happened, which is, I think, what happens when people immerse themselves in knowing people who are different so you can't you know because you can kind of have uh, these fears about people of different races or refugees or queer people or and then you actually meet them realize that it was all in your head and then it kind of I don't want to say cures you of your homophobia but it's certainly like you know you certainly can have a journey with that yeah I have a very um I have a similar family member that had yeah. a journey and now has very little memory Yes. Of, of, of the journey yes. they've been on. <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting because that like, you know, just listening to 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 what those fears were. And it was really about what other people thought or what my life was going to be like. But it was also it was quite significant. You know, at one point this person said to me, if you love us, you will walk away from this relationship. Um, and that's like quite a dramatic, you know, piece of emotional blackmail there. But I I think I was protected by a just being in love with Sue and being extremely happy and high on, you know, oxytocin and serotonin and like, you know, just high on being in love. But I think also I knew I think I always knew that what I felt wasn't dirty. Like, how could this like kind of what I was talking about earlier with the Pope, like how could this beautiful connection and love that I was feeling for another person and anyway be wrong it didn't feel wrong and I trusted my own instincts on that and so I was therefore able to be quite um separate from this person's journey like being like okay you work it out you ask me any questions I'm here for you but I'm not going to take on any of your shame it doesn't belong to me and I don't want it um and so I was really lucky that that was my experience and I think that kind of comes from just the age that I am and the work that everybody in the world had done for LGBT plus rights so that like my understanding of it wasn't oh, it's wrong it's weird it's wrong I, I love I love that you stepped away from that and said that's that that you weren't going to take on that shame I think that's just brilliant um oh thank you do you think that the fact that you say you didn't have any internalized shame which is quite an unusual mm. um thing to come up on this podcast because yeah quite often that's quite pronounced for quite a lot of us or it can be um and do you think it that is linked to the fact that you had that feeling and you spoke it straight away that's really interesting that's a really interesting question I think it must be I think it's I, I think it must be that and it and, an, and another element of it is uh the time and place that I you know, realize my sexuality. And I think another part of it is a sort of an inbuilt arrogance that I've always had, which is, well, if I feel this way, it can't be wrong because, you know, it's me. Um, so I think, I think sometimes arrogance can mask insecurity. Um, and so I sometimes err on the side of like making jokes about how brilliant I am when I'm feeling a little insecure. And I think that that was part, I think that was part of that. But I do believe as a person and, the, you know, and this is reflected in my friendships and my relationships, I do really believe in like, in, in like emotional communication and like talking about how mm -hmm. you feel. And I do think that only good stuff comes of that. Nobody ever kind of says, oh, I told a good friend about something I was worried about and now I feel worse. I mean, they might if someone really fucks up, but I do, I think that's a huge thing if you can crack that in life. That like, you know, that if you talk to someone you trust about something you're upset about, nine times out of 10, you're gonna feel better. Um, and so I think, I think that openness uh, can really help with the stuff that we just push down and get afraid of. Um, and give it this huge power, like the power of a rolling bit of moss. You know, it starts off small and then you push it down so it gets bigger and bigger and then you have to deal with this big boulder of moss. Don't know why I went with moss here. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, I've never thought about it that way. So thank you for the realisation, but I think that might have played a role for sure. 
And I also, I, I hope it's not too, as I say, kind of like arrogant and up myself to come on and talk about my lack of shame, because I think that like, like lots of people have had very difficult journeys coming, coming out. And it's, it's very like, you know, arrogant of me to come on and be like, yeah, no, I was fine. But I also feel passionately about it because I think that if you can teach kids that actually what they're feeling isn't wrong and they sh they don't have to wait if they don't want you know if they want to and need to that's fine but if they're 12 and have a crush on someone of the same sex they don't have to wait until they're sure like people tell them or you're 12 you don't know because being gay or queer is just the same as being straight so if you're 12 and you can, and you're a boy who says you're allowed to say you have a crush on a girl then you should be allowed to say you have a crush on a boy and the more open i think we are about that then the less shame people will feel and so that's why i think it's I, even though I sound like a dick, I think it's okay to sometimes tell stories of, actually, I was fine because that's not my shame. That's other people's shame. Do you know what I mean? And I, yeah, but I really have to stop you there because I don't think that you sound like a dick at all. And I am delighted that you are telling this story on the podcast because I think it's so important because I don't want anyone to, you know, wrestle with the shame that I had to yeah. wrestle with. Yeah. The fact that you exist <laughs> and that your experience exists yes. is actually super inspiring and hopeful oh, well, and I hope so. maybe a look towards the future and mm. maybe that, you know, maybe a podcast like this is not going to have to exist in 20 years mm. because people aren't going to be searching for queer stuff to make yeah, I know their lives mean. and their feelings feel normal. Mm. You know, in an ideal world, this podcast wouldn't exist <laughs> because people wouldn't have to deal with, with it. In an ideal world, we'd just have less Susie Ruffle. No, I don't want to. <laughs> in an I ideal world, I world, would have Susie. No, I would have fewer podcasts. <laughs> but That's but you funny. know what I mean? Like it's 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 really sad that uh, that some people's journeys are sort of wrapped up in shame, and they do have to, you know. And it is, you know, in their mid thirties and you know or early forties where they like actually really. Yeah deal with it mm. but I think it's really important and exciting that that isn't your journey and I love that you don't take on other people's shame and I hope that like people that are listening to this and I know we have listeners first of all across the globe in countries where they can't be themselves I was just gonna say I desperately need to acknowledge my own privilege and my privilege was being from like a middle class slightly arty family you know in middle class school like in you know not in the 1900s in now um, you know going to study drama at university like all of those things I like I, I absolutely Absolutely recognize my massive, massive privilege in that. But I, but I think that, you know, people that might live somewhere where they can't be themselves, I think that mm. them hearing you mm. is really great I to know so. that somewhere they don't have to hold that shame. Yeah. You know, there is a place where you cannot hold that. Well, I think I want them to know that, like, no matter what other people think they can look inside themselves and go hang on a second how could how could this be wrong how could loving another mm -hmm. person be wrong like that that's it i sort of want people to like rely on their own instincts yeah i think that's brilliant well i mean we're coming towards the end of the of let's do it let's do a double let's go for another couple hours <laughs> let's go i mean i totally could i totally could um did you have a lot of friends that were sort of already part of the lgbt or queer community when you were just dropping into conversation, I can totally guess with you, it was just dropping into conversation that you were bisexual. Yes, I think I did by then. But I think it's also important to realise that, like, I don't think I met a gay person until I was 16 or 17 in real life. And then, again, this speaks to in just... In real life. <laughs> yeah, in real life. I think I saw them on the television. Um, and I remember, like, finding out that one of the... Uh, like, I was on... Uh, yeah, it was, like, someone on uh, who, like, taught at a youth theatre where I went. I remember finding out that he was a gay man and it blew my mind. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it, but it was like finding out that he had zebra stripes across his belly. It was sort of like, oh my God, really? Like really, a real life gay person, wow. Um, and so that, you know, that was my journey. And then into, by the time you get to university, there's a lot more kind of like visibly gay, visibly gay people. And also I do have to say that I love and use the word queer now, but when I was growing up queer, people did use it as a slur for gay people but it was also just a word for when things were a bit gone off so like you would smell a yogurt and be like no I think that's a bit queer actually I think that's a bit queer so when Irish people started using it like in the last 10 years or so I was like no we can't reclaim that that is a terrible word no I refuse to and now I realize that actually it's so useful because you want something that includes 
everybody. And actually, it's a great word. It's just that it really brings to mind like gone off yogurt when I. <laughs> so I did. Oh my God, Broner, I think you do have some shame. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, we found some. Yay. <laughs> Come on out with Susie Ruffle. Find your shame. <laughs> oh, thank you. Can you do the new advert? Yes, yes, I will. <laughs> so, no, I didn't until like my late teens, early 20s. And then I had loads. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And was it like, was Ireland, and I'm only saying this because of the Catholic Church, yeah. but did Ireland feel like quite a homophobic place at that point? Because I know I've been to Dublin and there's yeah. great bars and there's yeah. a real sort of queer hub now, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but I don't know what it was like sort of 15 years ago. Well, it was, I can't remember the exact year, but it was in the 1990s that um, homosexual sex between two men was, was decriminalised. Like it mm-hmm. was a crime. It was still a crime in the in the nineteen nineties, um, mm-hmm. and so yes, that pervaded all of society. But I do think that with the loosening of the worship of the Catholic Church, that then and then also people, you know, sort of like role models, like uh, media stars, be, like being a bit more out and that kind of thing. But then it's hard to divorce it from my own experience, which was just like, you know, in the in the next decade, I was going to university and stuff anyway. But it does it does feel like, you know, and I went out to gay clubs a lot, actually, um, before I even realized I was bisexual, just because that was the fun place to dance. And so it was a great scene and it remains just an amazing scene to this mm. day. So I I think I think I remember a, a family friend uh, who's in his 50s, maybe pushing 60s now, he is he is absolutely traumatised by the Ireland that he grew up in. I would meet him in these clubs when I was out in my 20s and he would sort of say like, oh, do people in your family, do they know about me? And I would be like, I don't, I don't know. I don't care. Do you want me to tell them I saw you here? Like I didn't, I, I didn't really clock it, but I know that that like that generation were absolutely abused by uh, you know society and the church and the law like it's a huge thing and I think I don't know um, like uh, where people will be listening to this from but like that is a horrible and huge trauma for the for the government of your country to say that your love is wrong and mm. you know like <laughs> women were never in that law in Ireland because as you know two women can't have sex. You know, so in a, again, like that was sort of female privilege in a way of being, of being, uh, you know, protected yeah. by that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think, I think Ireland has changed beyond recognition now. And we were the first country in the world to pass marriage equality by popular vote. And now Irish people are so proud of that. And it passed by like, oh, I can't even remember. It was in the 90s, 90th percentile. It was incredible. And if anyone hasn't seen it, there's, there, there will be videos on YouTube of yeah. it when it got passed. And I mean, I just remember weeping. I was there. I was in Dublin Castle. Yeah, I went home. I was in Dublin <gasps> Castle uh, courtyard when, you know, when oh, I was just incredible. I was, I was so proud, so proud to be Irish. Yeah, that was, I remember watching it on the TV and just yeah, bursting into tears. Oh, just because it's thank you. Well, just, you're Irish, you know, so it just, was emotional for you. Of course, it, it was huge for me. Yeah, um, from the from the ruffles of mayo. <laughs> uh, this has been Brona Quiva Titley. Oh, this has so been such a joy, such a joy. And thank you oh, for so lovely. Thank you so much for having me. I know that you've listened to the show, so you know the final question of the show. And I'm thinking about the brainer who decided not to take anybody else's shame but maybe someone's listening who's had a family member that's that is going through it at the moment or is scared about telling someone in their life if you could sort of pick up the phone and give them I don't know a bit of advice from the experience you've had uh, what would you say to them oh it's such a lovely question and I I do know that you ask it and I actually do have a piece of advice for younger me as well if that's okay yes Um, please please which weirdly is connected to shame but it's not shame of sexuality i think it comes from shame of the church and my advice to teenage brona is to have more sex because i really (sighs) 
really thought it was something you could only do when you were married. And so I, I only slept with partners who I was in committed relationships with. Um, and now that I'm in what will hopefully be my long, long term marriage, I'm just like, oh, why did I do that? And I think it was because the church like really had some stigma around that. And me and my friends at Catholic school, we took that on. We were like, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to give that to someone unless they're really committed to me because that is my that is my little gem. And now I think, oh, that was shame, actually, Brona. And you can open your legs for a few more people if you want to. <laughs> Absolutely. But in terms of uh, in terms of somebody else who's listening, like, well, well um, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, you out there. Um, and I just want to I just want to reiterate uh, what I said before, which is like you are incredible. Like the love that you have to offer another person is a beautiful thing. And you are the best in the whole world at being you. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you. Not only that, what you have is going to make your life richer, happier, better, more fulfilled. And you don't have to take on anybody else's bullshit around that. Doesn't mean you have to go and shout it on the rooftops, especially if it's not safe. I am not saying that. I am just telling you that you can go sleep at night knowing that you are pure and wonderful and never, ever let anyone tell you different. And if they do, I will fucking kill them. Oh, Brian, I wish you could have said that to 14-year-old me. I think, I think oh, if I met 14-year-old you, I would have known I was bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag representation. And we wouldn't have to have put our love on the long finger. Well, we would there have done, go. but just behind the sprinklers, <laughs> behind the church. I got fingered for the first time behind a church, just, just to end on a nice full circle. Of Catholic shame. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> so good to talk to you, pal. Oh, Brenda, that was so good. Thank you. Oh, I just loved that episode so much. I think Brenda's so brilliant. Check her out on all the uh, on all the social medias. Um, yeah, and keep across what she's doing. She's just so great. Uh, if you want to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Please tweet about the show, Instagram about the show. Leave a little review if that's the kind of thing you'd like to do. It's really helpful um, to get more people to find it so more people can listen to it. I hope you have a great week and I'll chat to you next week. Okay, bye. Bye.